Hi, welcome to the Lead by Design show. I'm your host, Dev Singh. I have a question for you. What does it mean to lead by design? Exploring that question is the basic premise of this show, where I speak with inspiring leaders about leadership, design, agility, innovation, and many other things in between. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, and I hope that in some way it inspires you to be a more mindful and conscious leader in your own life. Welcome everybody to another long-awaited episode of Lead by Design. I'm really excited to have someone I've been wanting to speak to in this kind of a context for many years now, Joseph Mers. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about Joseph and then we'll crack into a very very interesting fascinating conversation that might venture into a few different pathways from previous episodes. Joseph founded his first business at 16 years old. He's gone on to launch a number of organizations since and he's still involved with a few of these organizations namely Sterling Group which is a licensing group of ethical and sustainable recruiters and the Mers Institute a data-driven conservation organization with a broad mission that ensures continuous continual relevance in a world where the only constant is change. Joseph is passionate about solving big issues from consumerism and energy to insect biomass decline and the climate crisis. Joseph, very excited to have you here. I've got some very interesting questions for you, uh, but also I'm hoping we'll keep this conversational and uh, uh, we can have a meaningful conversation that impacts people, leaders, aspiring and emerging and uh, current to do some really meaningful and important stuff in the world as you are. So welcome. Thank you Dev, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here and I know we've we've talked about doing this for a while and both of us have been trying to align something and we've finally done it. So <laughs> finally, finally we have and um, I've always found these kinds of conversations when there's a little bit of struggle to get there it ends up being all the more worth it and uh, and rich and meaningful somehow. Not sure why. There's and I promise I didn't deliberately sabotage our attempts to <laughs> to come together. <laughs> but um but I'm uh, I'm very optimistic about this conversation. So Joseph, uh, I first came across you many years ago now, uh, looking at your Sterling Group website, which in your bio itself you reference as a licensing group of ethical and sustainable recruiters. So I was really inspired by the design of the website, having a bit of a background in web design myself, uh, but also how specific, clear, and deliberate you were to not just be another recruitment agency, but you've got a, um, a bit of a manifesto and a, a purpose-driven articulation of that particular organization. So I wanted to ask you to begin with, what does it mean for a recruitment agency to be a licensing group of ethical and sustainable recruiters? So just at a superficial level, like what what is that as a business model? So it's, it's kind of a... Um we sort of had to utilize the licensing model to, to, to do what we wanted to do legally. The, the, the idea was I wanted to start an organization that was distributive and would pay recruiters a lot more than, um, so it w- wouldn't pay them salaries, it would just pay them a lot more than uh, in, in kind of commission. Um, and it was, it, it, it came out of, uh, the fact that when I moved to Australia, I um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I knew I kind of needed to start 
another business or something. And I'd had such terrible experiences in recruitment um, from, you know, trying to find jobs and things like that, that it, it's, there was sort of just an idea and I needed to do something with it. And, um, and I noticed that when I got into recruitment, because my brother suggested that I did that, um, I, yeah, I just found that, um, that there was all the recruiters were talking about how they thought they could just go off and set up their own businesses. And, um, and they just thought it was going to be just this simple thing. And because I'd had other businesses, I knew it just was not as simple as that. So I thought, imagine if we could provide like a platform for them where they could just come and recruit for themselves, make way more money. And, um, and that's where the whole idea started. So then licensing was the, the legal way to do that. And that, that was, and then, yeah, it, it came from there. So something that struck me about you that I find really interesting is that you don't really promote yourself as a social entrepreneur and your businesses, as far as I understand, are not really set up in at least a traditional nonprofit constitution. And yet you're what I would consider an ethical and very, very conscious serial entrepreneur. You've set up many businesses and they've all been very, very purpose-driven and passion-driven. And that in itself is rare um, anyway. I mean, it's rare enough to be entrepreneurial in the, in the kind of businesses that you've set up, but it's also rare to be consistently ethically and consciously driven and then do a string of businesses with that ethos behind it. And then on top of that, not be, um, not go down the expected path of setting up a foundation. I mean, you do have a foundation as well. We'll talk about that later, but setting up an institution, as a nonprofit or a charity, um, you, you found sort of different ways of uh, doing this. I, I'm just wondering, was that a conscious thing or is it something that you just found to be the intuitive way to do things on a case-by-case -case basis? How did you decide what kind of businesses to set up to drive those missions forward? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I... It was it was very much a conscious thing. I I was um, I just noticed I've I've about the one thing I've been really good at all my life is seeing holes in things, and I um, I could just see holes in lots of different areas um, in in different um, markets and industries and things like that. And when I first started making money from the businesses I started when I was younger, I just noticed that no matter how much I made, it didn't impact my happiness beyond a certain point. And, and then it became about, well, how can I do this like ethically and how can I share this with others? And there were all sorts of, it was so many things that kind of came into it because I was just longing for some deeper meaning in things i think and my um my my parents my dad was always very philosophical growing up he was a he was a monk for six and a half years before um before he met my mum. so and he studied philosophy and theology and so we grew up questioning everything all the time and and i think that is what made me stop and go well why am I doing this? Like, what's the ultimate goal? If I just keep making lots of money, is that going to 
am I going to be happy? Is it you know, like, what's the point? And, um, and so that's when I started looking at better ways of doing things. And, and, and I, I got to a point where I've just now, I actually don't believe there is really even a sustainable business in the way that we look at commercial businesses. Now, I, I, I don't think it's, um, it, it has to fit into the capitalist model. And if it has to fit into that model, it's, um, I, yeah, I just don't think it's really possible to kind of take it to that full idea of sustainable. So the way I see myself is, is with these organizations is kind of pushing it is pushing the envelope as far as I can. And a lot of them now people have just come to me. Like I don't, I haven't set up, um, well, I haven't, I don't have them on my own anymore, really. Um, because people have sort of come out of the woodwork and wanted to get involved with us because they've heard of, you know, the, the ethical mentality. And I think in a way it's become kind of popular <laughs> to be in that category. So I've, um, I've had to sort of keep an eye on that too, because some of the, some really not great organizations have tried to align themselves with what we're doing um, just to kind of get the social credit or something, I, I guess. But to answer the, the first part of your question, I, I, you know, I don't refer to myself as a social entrepreneur or even an entrepreneur. I, I just, I hate that term now. And I think it's really, um, it's just been ruined like so many things. I think that, you know, it's just been thrown about so much. And I know that probably sounds quite extreme, but um yeah, I, I kind of, I mean, even on my, I think my, my, I tried to write an about me on my LinkedIn profile and I just couldn't leave any of it. I just, it bothered me so much. So I think now all it says is I'll, I'll probably remind you you're a primate or something like that because yeah, I, it's literally <laughs> what it says. It's really, yeah, yeah I found that really interesting. Um, and I, I think that's kind of, the fundamental thing that sums up where I'm at as a, as a human on my journey anyway. So yeah. I'm very interested Joseph, in asking you about your, uh, your dad's experience. You mentioned that he was a monk for six and a half years. Did you say before he met yeah. your mother yeah. and you said that had an influence on your, uh, changing from a capitalist model to, so there's a, there's obviously a few decades, perhaps maybe a couple of decades at least of a gap in there. Cause you're saying that he was a monk before he met your mom. Then he met your mom. Then you were born at some point. Then it didn't have an influence on you to begin with clearly because you went into a standard entrepreneurial path and then you changed. So how did the monk experience come back around and influence you was it a conversation with your father was it something that you discovered about his history how did it come back into the picture after all those years yeah i've never actually thought of it like that before but you're right you know i did i went very much into the traditional side and then moved away from it and i think probably because i was so despite my upbringing and despite you know questioning everything I, I needed to start somewhere in 
that world. And so I started where I saw the world operated, which was in this kind of Richard Branson space where, I mean, I read, I read all of Richard Branson's books when I was a teenager and I, um, you know, I was, I was obsessed with all that stuff and just trying to, trying to, I was just so in, genuinely interested in business. It wasn't, you know, I, and, and by business, I mean, I just loved the idea of people wanting something that you had and that you created and using creativity. And I also loved the idea of not knowing I was quite obsessed with money and I loved the idea of not knowing, um, you know, you could just come up with an idea and bang, there would just be a whole lot more money there. And it was just, you know, if you didn't have that idea, you wouldn't have it. And that kind of got me quite excited, but I think, um, so I think the reason I went into that traditional route down that traditional route in the beginning was because it was, it was kind of where I saw I needed to start. Um, because that's where the, you know, the entrepreneurs were. And, and back then I wasn't opposed to the word. Um, and I mean, I, I was, it was a mess in the beginning with some of the, you know, some of the things I, I think back now, and I was I'd cringe at the thought of some of the meetings I had. <laughs> Just like what, so any particular example come to mind? Oh, one, one time, because I was a pilot for a while, studied to be a pilot and um, for quite a few years. And I decided one time that I wanted to start an airline <laughs> and, um, and we got really, really far with it. Like we planned this so well, me and one of the other pilots. And, you told um, me this, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had, I just, I've had, I mean, even from call, I called one of these, there's a, there's a quite a well-known um, businessman in New Zealand called Mike Perro. And I, I remember ringing him, asking him for an $8 million loan when I was Oh, how old was I? I must've been like 16 or something or 15. And um, oh, actually I can't remember what, what age I was, but anyway, he, he just said to me, look, mate, you sound like you're about 12. <laughs> and <laughs> there were just lots of experiences like that. Um, and, um, but yeah, anyway, the, the thing that kind of, I think that shifted it was that, the fact that I, I assumed that when I got to this point, I would just feel fulfillment and I would feel happiness and I didn't. And, um, and, and so then I started, you know, thinking more about the things that my dad used to talk about and my parents would talk about. And my dad was always about doing the right thing. Like I remember once as a kid, you know, we walked past this, this mechanic shop and, and like, there was this just a, like an old nut on the ground, but well, not old, it was kind of a shiny new nut, but from a, from something. And I picked it up as a kid and I was, you know, just thought I'd keep it. And we started walking past and, and he said to me, are you just going to take that? Like, you know, that clearly came from there. Is that something that you like? And I, I as a kid, I was like, well, oh, you know, I was actually pretty upset by the whole thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> Finders keepers, <but> dad. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I mean, it was just this, it's just a little nut. Like it's not like he's mm. missing it. Well, maybe he was, but my dad clearly just wanted me to think about these things. And 
And so I was brought up with this like idea that that is the, that was the level that was expected kind of of me. And so when I started searching for why I wasn't feeling fulfillment and all of that, I think I started going back through all of that and it made me really start questioning the morals around the whole idea of just growth, growth, growth. And yeah. Um, well, the ethical side of it, I should say. So, right. Yeah. Does that answer your question? <laughs> a little bit. And, um, we can come back around to this cause I'm, I'm really curious about the kinds of, the kind of influence that parents have on their kids that sometimes we don't realize until a long time later, how those lessons come back around and inform certain decisions that we make as an adult. And this is, this is very powerful in leadership generally, whether you're leading a team or leading an organization or a business or leading a mission to do something contributive as, as you do. And I think it's very insightful when we think about what are the lessons that we have yet to learn that our parents might have already shared with us when we were much younger. In some cases, it's what not to do. And in some cases, it's what to do. And in some cases, it's just about how to think about what's important and what we value. So I, f I find that fascinating that there's a reference there on that particular experience that you've attributed of your dad being a monk for six and a half years and how that's given a kind of container to all of the uh, moral compassing and directing for your decisions. But in the meantime, I'm curious, did you have a particular tipping point where you realized that you were unfulfilled, as you said? And how did you recognize it? What were the symptoms? Yeah, um, there was definitely a tipping point, yeah. And I, um, I recognized it. I just, I just constantly found that I was moving the goalposts all the time for more. And I just kept thinking more why, like that was, that was really why I just remember thinking I'm not actually ever achieving anything because as soon as I achieve it, I'm moving it again to something bigger or further away. And, and then I started looking at really deeply into like the way that organizations actually did this because I create I mean I just made up my own way of doing everything all the time I very rarely looked at that was another thing that my dad used to kind of talk about was he always said that I went to the University of Hard Knocks because um, I you know I never studied business or anything I just sort of did what made sense and mm. um, and that's one of the great things about it you know it, it, it really is pretty pretty like logical um, but, um, yeah, so I, I just started, started questioning why I was doing all of that. And, um, and because it was kind of my own, I always made up my own way with things. I did, I, I thought, well, maybe, maybe the answers are in the fact that other organizations do this differently. And I've just made the wrong way of measuring how I'm I've created the wrong way of measuring how I'm achieving goals. So I remember looking really deeply into um, some of the ways that big companies measured their achievements. And I actually found it was, it was 10 times worse than, than how I did it. Like I think if I, from memory, there was a big company, I don't know whether it was Google or something like that. And they like 
attributed these these decimal values to to everything they did and then they'd total them up and if it was below above a certain amount or below a certain amount or something then they classified it as like a successful thing or or unsuccessful and and I tried it and it was just the worst I just thought I can't do this like it's just it's even worse so then I realized that basically the you know the direction that these super successful companies were going in was actually the opposite direction to where I wanted to go. So what were um, you doing instead of so I, convoluted I've decimal always, measurements? Yeah, I've always had a really, and I've told this to so many people with, within the different organizations that we've worked with, but I've always had a really simple structure on how I manage everything. So obviously, as you get more organizations or involved with more organizations, there's it can be pretty overwhelming. And um, I, you know, I, I might, I had a, an amazing PA recently who's now gone to Singapore um, and I really miss her, which is a shame, but she was just, she was honestly like a, just an extension. I could just, I could, yeah, I could literally just hand something off to her and I knew she would just do exactly what I would do. Um, and in the absence of something like that, to be able to go back and still cope with the workload, um, and still have spare time and all of that with the number of organizations that we're involved in, I think it, to me, that says that the system that I developed when I was really young actually works quite well. And the system is basically a book. So I have a book that I just a normal book. And at the front of the book, I just put a little like checkbox kind of thing and I'll write what I want to do. And at the back of the book, I have a page for every different organization and the longish term goals. I never plan uh, long, really long term. I very rarely plan longer than three months in advance because I think it's, it's actually just a waste of time. If you're trying to find enjoyment in business then you shouldn't set long-term objectives in my opinion um and so yeah so then in the back this for each for each different organization there's a bunch of things that i want to achieve and then that way i can quite easily flick between the front of the book and the back of the book and see if the kind of daily things that i'm writing down for myself are actually going to bring me to those things in the back and I'll quite regularly, you know, remove things from the back of the book and create new ones or shift them around depending on what's happening in the market or depending on, you know, where I want to go with things or how it might help another another part of the kind of um, organizational ecosystem, <laughs> if you can call it that, without being blasphemous toward nature. Um, but I think... Um, yeah, so so that's that's the system that I and and I mean it's kind of I've kind of adjusted it over over the years slightly, but that's the basic idea in it, and it 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 works really well. Okay, very so simple. for those, <laughs> it does sound very simple. It sounds very elegant. Um, that's certainly one thing that I've appreciated over the past few years. How the simplest solutions can usually be the most effective because you're not getting caught up in trying to 
manage and maintain the complexities of something that's overly sophisticated. Um, I, I think that just quickly to add yeah. to that, I think that it's so it's it's what I call the the way of 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 actually enjoying running an organization, in my opinion. Otherwise, you've got these deadlines. You've got, you know, I don't even, I don't set deadlines unless I say to someone I'm going to have something to them. I do not set a deadline. And and what I do is I actually flick through the book um, and find the things I want to do that day. So depending on what I'm feeling like that day, there'll always be something in there that I want to tackle. And because there's no deadlines, it doesn't really matter. And because we're not chasing crazy growth all the time, it doesn't matter because, you know, it's still definitely fast enough to keep an organization afloat and, you know, even keep that organization thriving. Um, and and it's enjoyable because you're not doing, you know, you don't sit down in the morning and go, I really don't feel like doing this today, but I have to because i got this deadline. So, yeah. So... For those who may not be watching this in video form, uh, listening on on, the, on their podcast platforms, uh, what you held up was a, a notebook, right? It was just a simple, yeah, just blind. a school or whatever they're called, um, a, a lecture book, and yeah. yeah, it's just normal blind ones. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's amazing, and in in essence, the principles that you're talking about really line up with um, a lot of the foundational principles of design thinking and agile, which maybe quite jargonistic in your world, um, but a lot of the guests of this particular show and other guests that I've had on the show and the audience members will be familiar with these terms because they've become very prominent in industry, in schools and, uh, and philosophies of management and project organization and delivery. The name of this show is Lead by Design. And specifically, mm. I'm really interested in, as you know, obviously we've talked about this, um, figuring out how people can be more conscious in designing the kind of leaders that they want to be. And it's not just consciousness in terms of uh, being ethical or purpose-driven. It's conscious just in terms of self-awareness. And it sounds like that's something that you've got buckets load of, but in a really meaningful way where you're not just aware of a overly sophisticated management style, but really you've got that practice of cutting down to the essentialism of how you're going to lead your businesses and your organizations. Is that something that you've deliberately cultivated or has it just come to you naturally? Or is it also something you've picked up from your, um, uh, your exploratory philosophical conversations with your father? Where, where does that essentialism mentality come from? I think it came out of a few things. And I think part of it came from the fact that I was never very good at forcing myself into some of those other ways of operating. And, you know, I'm familiar with design thinking and all of that, so that sort of stuff now. I wouldn't have been back then, but um, I think, I, you know, like the, like the Google example or whatever that company was, you know, when I tried it, it just didn't fit. It just did not fit with, with how I am as a person. And so I was, I was looking for something, you know, I know a number of CEOs of different organizations, some, some huge organizations. And, and I don't think my design, my style would work for them. Um, it might, if they, if they sort of went through some huge journey to find what real meaning was to them. 
Um, and, you know, that might sound pretty arrogant to say that and, and maybe real meaning to them is exactly what they're doing. But I think for the most part, um, we, we're pretty we're pretty deluded in what it in 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 finding that um or thinking we know where the value is and where the meaning is in our own lives because we've just got this narrative being reinforced all, all the time and when you start having some success in that space and if you've got a natural inclination toward wanting to maximize that which i didn't um you would just go like a, you know, you'd go like a bat out of hell toward that, I can imagine. So for some of those people, that's probably just their natural kind of state. But sorry, I, I actually, my brain went off in that direction and I lost the, I lost the question. So <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Sometimes that's, sometimes that makes the most beautiful uh, conversation pieces. Let me ask you the signature question of the show at this point, because I think it's a good um, it's a good place for it, and it'll help us branch off into some interesting directions. What does lead by design or to lead by design mean to you? How do you recognize it? You mentioned you interact and uh, work with a lot of very big and, and influential people. Do you see some of them leading by design and some of them not leading by design? And, and how do you tell the difference? To me, I think leading by design is recognizing the, the way things truly operate. And, you know, I used to do a bit with, there was a, my first business advisor was a guy, um, he had six degrees in business and one degree in boat building. And um, he, he specialized, he had a PhD in tacit knowledge management. And, you know, the whole idea of, tacit knowledge is just it's a pretty interesting idea for those of you who don't know it's basically like um if you imagine an organization and um well this is my understanding of it after you know all of the communication i had on it but if you imagine an organization um and they've got you know the standard operating procedures and all of that um and the operating procedures say that June is, or this particular role is what looks after a certain area. But because of the, you know, the particular way that that organization operates, um, everyone in the company knows that it's a guy called Aaron who's got a completely different job title that actually looks over that. Now, that's the example is that, that, uh, that what I'm saying is that that would be tacit knowledge. Um, it's, it's knowledge that's, you know, common in the organization, but there's no real record of it and, it and it doesn't actually match with what um what everyone would see looking from the outside so i guess why i brought up the tacit knowledge side of things is um because what you're leading by design is is to me about recognizing that like you can't you know it's not about this the superficial way that things should operate it's about the um making or, or making a plan or uh, you know planning for action based on the reality of the situation um and the reality of most likely how things are going to play out uh, that that would be my take on it so if leading by design is to see things as they actually are and part of that is to get a sense of what 
tacit knowledge is around you to be able to observe the uh, the state of how things are actually operating. I think that's how you said it. Is that more or less? Yeah, right? pretty much. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you do you have any practices or rituals or uh, or guidance that you give to people in your teams or other leaders who come to you to say, this is how you should get more attuned to the reality of things, or this is how you can check in on where you might be not seeing things how they are, or even for yourself, how do you do that? How do you stay... Uh, stay real, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah, I I spend a lot of time in nature and I find that things just sit there in the back of my mind. And because I don't put deadlines on things, I'm, well, rarely put deadlines on things. Things just stay in the back of my head somewhere doing something. And, and, and I slowly, as my kind of journey progresses, um, I join the dots in certain things. Uh, uh, and a, a really good example is, is something where I'm working on at the moment in the Institute, which is um, basically if you look at all of the issues we're facing in, as a species, there are the, they, the, the, the vast majority of them stem back to um, this kind of hyper consumption that we're, you know, we're so addicted to and that stems back to the success of the um, marketing communications industry and you know how well they have been able to um, drive drive that Um, and when I came into the not-for-profit space and and started working in that initially it was just trying to put money into good projects and then i realized that i just am so sick of money that i wanted to actually do something and it took me about three years i went straight for the the best scientists i could in the world and managed to get a number of them on my advisory board and like amazing people that i am just a, a privileged to be able to deal with every day or every few days. Um, and I, I, the, by going straight to that, we were able to cut through, I reckon years and years of searching for the reality of how things are happening. Cause there's so many different versions of it based on, you know, people's narratives and, and where you look. Um, and, and it still took three years to work out where to start. Um, but I have now got to the point that, you know, I've been able to see all these, all these different not-for-profits and, and see the difference between the way that they try and achieve things versus how I've done things in the commercial world. And, and because I haven't chased that traditional kind of way of operating, but I've very deeply explored it and I've taken different stakes and different organizations that have allowed me to see more of that. An example is a data and analytics startup that we've got a stake in and just watching how that, that world works is remarkable. And um, anyway, bit of a convoluted way of explaining it, but with through that process, I've found, um, you know, that, that not-for-profits have always been about 
um, have always been about increasing awareness. It's all about increasing awareness on these causes. And it's all about, you know, um, conveying the facts and trying to get people to understand these things and then make behavioral change. And the real uh, interesting part is that one of my advisors, a really wonderful organizational psychologist, told me very early on that information alone very rarely changes behavior and um and and you can see that that's what we're doing though we've been trying over and over and over again to do that we're just throwing information at people more information and people know they you know a good number of people know what's going on they feel incredibly uncomfortable about it they want to do something about it but they just can't bring themselves to the behavioral change because we're not driving behavioral change we're informing people and really as organizations what do we want to do um are we out to to actually as a, as a not-for-profit i mean are we trying to change their behavior or just inform people and and we've got a human behavior problem it's not it's not an information problem in my opinion um so anyway what i'm getting at is that um it became very clear to me that there's a real opportunity to utilize the tools that have been used to drive consumerism and drive that whole model um, to push the other direction. But, but there's a number of natural kind of benefits to it in the fact that capitalism on a whole leaves a lot of people unhappy. Um, the vast majority of people, you know, um, and and I know it's easy to say that from the comfort of my house with electricity and all of that, like there are plenty of benefits, don't get me wrong, but the, the, the vast majority of people who are trying to achieve success or whatever it is, won't achieve it. Um, they just won't. It's as simple as it won't achieve their definition of success. So, and, and our reality is, you know, our perception. So, um, it's amazing how easy that is to fix in a lot of, in a, in a way. Um, and these organizations have the tools to do all of that. And so by tapping into some of those almost biological benefits of moving away from, um, moving away from the, the way that we're doing things now, I think it's possible to, by utilizing those tools and getting rid of the idea that we need to tell people the facts, if it, it doesn't matter about the facts and it matters about the behavioral change, suddenly we can tell wonderful stories that will bring it, will elicit the change that we need exactly the way the commercial side of things operates and has done so successfully to, to create this problem in the first place. And there's this sort of potential for a some sort of positive feedback loop that happens because people are moving out of a state that actually didn't bring them, you know, excessive happiness anyway. Um, so, so that to me, that's an example of um, looking at things for truly how they're working, and and um, basically designing for. Uh, for having an impact um, based on the reality as opposed to the perception, if, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's very, it's very monogamous. Um, it's a big concept, actually. There's a lot of things that I would like to talk about in that. I really agree with what you've said and what you were advised that information rarely alone, uh, alone rarely leads to behavioral change at that mass level anyway, um, unless there's some motivation for that change already there. I have the pleasure of working with very, very intelligent um, environmental economists. And one of the very simple, almost elusive, obvious truths I picked up from a colleague of mine a few months ago was that ultimately, uh, in, in the kind of capitalist world that we live in, we have market levers that adjust behavior. And you've basically got carrots and you've got sticks. And that's what drives behavior. There are certain carrots that people will move towards because they're motivated to want something. And there are certain sticks like public policy regulation that will um, that people will behave in a particular way to avoid those sticks. And I found, because I started my career in the NGO sector, and whilst there were some grassroots community organizations that were doing a lot of service provision. There was also a lot of advocacy and communication and information dissemination that went around it. And I had that question from a very young age, um, young in, in my career, I mean, about what's the point of this promotion if you're either preaching to the converted or the people who need to do something differently um, are going to be deafened by their own cognitive biases based on the information that you're sharing. So unless you're attaching some sort of a carrot or stick or some sort of a market lever to that information to adjust the behavior, then the behavior is not going to be adjusted because people are already convinced about what they want. I do think that sometimes you can have conversations that can change people's mind about what is a carrot to them or what is a stick for them. And you could argue that that comes with information or at least it requires information uh, fundamentally. But I agree with you that just putting that information out there by itself is not going to really make a difference if you're not stimulating those conversations and being really mindful and proactive and getting people to think about, hey, look, your idea of a carrot is not really helpful. And you said something right. interesting in um, what you were saying about people are not going to be successful in at least their own definition of success. I really think a lot of people don't actually have their own definition of success these days. And, you know, this no, is, not their own. They just adopt one and think it's their own. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. That's, that's what I'm getting at as well. It's an off the shelf, um, uh, off the shelf package that might be ready available. And they'll be like, Oh yeah, that sort of makes sense. I'll pick that. Um, and either it's because that seems like a fun version of success, or it seems like the kind of version of success that my parents will be proud of. But there isn't a lot of thought put to taking that selection and then even maybe modifying it, which is exactly what your story reflects, that you had a version of success and then over time you realize that that definition of success is not working for you, so you, you adapted mm. it and you modified it. I, can I just really quickly say something on the point that you, you made before? Because I think it's you a can really take valid Take as much time as you and- like. You don't have to say it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um so you you mentioned that you know for uh, for, for for some people um, the you you know 
information will change behavior. And you're right. There is a, I, I don't know what that number is, but in my experience, it's probably like around 5% or something. Like, I don't think it's a lot of people. Um, but that's, you know, that's just me picking a number out of thin air based on anecdotes. So um, the, the other thing um, about it is that it takes time. It's a journey that they have to be willing to go on. And, yeah. and I think right now, the reason I haven't bothered with it and I don't think we've got time to pursue it in the not-for-profit sector is because we just literally don't have time. Like we do not, based on the science, and I often say this, if I think people knew the conversations that we had with some of these scientists and, you know, um, they would just be absolutely terrified. So I don't think we have time for that. Um, but I, to, to bring everyone along those journey, that journey. And the other side to it is that they, they have to, a want, they have to be interested enough in the first place to, to go there and then, and then they have to have the perseverance to kind of push on as well, which kind of ties in with the interest thing. But um, so I think there are a lot of really big challenges going down that route when you're up against, well, in, in the kind of consumption discussion anyway, where you've got something pushing so hard and so fast in the other direction to try and kind of move people out of that um, purely based on, on those traits, um, I, I can see why we're not getting anywhere near enough movement in on the topics that you know there's really serious issues that we're we're facing. So anyway, I just wanted to to add that. Yeah, no, I agree. So just to be, make it really, really clear for anyone who's listening to this, um, that might be thinking, okay, we get it. Information promotion communication in itself is not going to move the needle fast enough. What is the antithesis to it? What do you do instead? And what are you doing instead? So I am, I'm part of a new, um, we've been asked to join this new stable planet alliance with um, one of my, uh, was founded by one of the advisory board members, um, Phoebe Barnard. She's one of the authors of the Scientists Warning to Humanities paper, um, took both of them actually um and she's amazing like honestly just you couldn't get anyone more amazing i'm in, i'm in awe of her all the time and she's really lovely too um which always helps but <laughs> <laughs> it um, does. so i in that we actually have uh, at the moment there there are weekly meetings um on some of these really big issues um, and there's some really amazing organizations that are part of that um, and that we're absolutely honored to be a part of um, with. Um, I have to add, I mean, we've got like the, in, in the Stable Planet Alliance, there's organizations like the Gates Institute and um, really amazing, amazing organizations. And there's not actually that many of us at this point in time, but I have to point out that some of the stuff I say is purely Mertz Institute stuff. So it's things that I'm trying to tackle. So mm. I just want to add as a disclaimer that um, <laughs> my speaking on behalf of those. Extreme. So yeah. yeah, I'm absolutely not speaking on behalf of those organizations. I was just, I've just been invited to be part of that, the, the discussions mm. on some of the 
major issues because of the programs that we're we're working on and the contacts we've got and things like that. But I am I am notorious for kind of I can't I can't kind of um, work on the periphery of some of these issues, and I just have to kind of go for the jugular with things. And so, yeah, a lot of the stuff I say is related to that. I just want to clarify that there's, you know, I'm definitely not speaking on behalf of any of them. Um, but so uh, I get a lot of really good information from, you know, things like that. I mean, that's a recent thing, but there's always sort of something going on in the Institute like that where, we, where we're sharing information. And um, so my, uh, to me, the, you know, the solution to, to this um, is to utilize, I actually reached out to a really well-known um, individual who runs a bunch of ad agencies um, and has founded a number of them and is um, really, really well-known in that space and told them what I'm wanting to do. And there's been, you know, there was a lot more interest there than I anticipated. Um, so I think we can actually pull together and, and create some really positive material and, and a really positive strategy that will genuinely make people happier using the exact same tools um, that is that are currently being used to um, to drive people in a, in a direction where they're not, you know, they're not getting happier and they're... So could you give an example uh, of a tool that drives behavior that isn't communication or promotion that doesn't make as much of a dent? I think it's more about the narrative, the story. So it's not, you know, the tools are the same tools that you would use. Well, for the most part, the, the same tools that you'd use for any ad campaign. It's, you know, getting in front of people, um, influences, all, all that sort of stuff. But the difference is the story, you know, the difference is you're telling people, um, you're not explicitly going out there saying, don't buy this or don't partake in this or don't, you know, you'll be happier if you walk away from this. Like that's the stuff that we've been trying all this time. It's like, you know, buy less milk or whatever it is. Um, and while that works for, you know, like, like we were saying before, that works for a, a percentage of people. Um, but with the freedom of moving away from informing people, you have this creative freedom to create stories that are far more, you know, impactful to a much wider audience um, and can still go out across the same, you know, using the same tools as the commercial uh, or the, you know, these, these organizations use like uh, data science and um, those sorts of things. Um, but suddenly as soon as you as soon as you let go of that need for to inform which is so so heavily tied up in any kind of not-for-profit you know when when we registered as a charity in New Zealand um, we had to we had to put out put down all these purposes on on the registration and our lawyers were amazing like we've got a really good lawyer here for that and 
he was really good with guiding things. And, um, but the thing that kind of struck me even then was it was just all about education. It had to be about, you know, it, we, we needed to just prioritize education. We needed to inform people and educate and raise awareness. And it was, it wasn't about making change. It wasn't, it didn't say we will drive behavioral change in, you know, <laughs> it was all about raising awareness, assuming that, you know, the impact will follow. And, and that is a, that's an assumption that is just, it's wrong. Um, and what, at the end of the day, what is the purpose of informing anyone on any of these topics? Is it, is it just to raise awareness? And why would you raise awareness if it wasn't to try and change behavior? So, and I think, I don't think, um, yeah, anyway, yeah. So this makes me think of the concept of um, outcomes over outputs. It's I think there's a book by that name as well, and it gets talked about quite a bit in product management and the world of agile and those kinds of disciplines again. And the idea is is that as we move towards a uh, a world that is a little bit more thoughtful in thinking about the impact of doing things as opposed to just serving bureaucratic machines you don't want to get hung up and stuck on just thinking about the outputs that you're producing, but what are the outcomes of those outputs? So it sounds really similar to me, what you're saying, which is it's not that there's a problem with communication materials or information. It's that if you get stuck at, we're just going to educate and not be mindful of the intent of what is the behavior change that that communication information piece of advertising collateral campaign is going to drive, then the narrative can fall flat because you might be talking to the wrong audience, you might not be communicating in the right language, and you won't drive behavior change. You're just going to, as we were talking about earlier, you'll end up either speaking to the, preaching to the converted or, you know, it'll, everyone's cognitive biases will get in the way of actually doing anything about believing or listening really to what you, what it is that you might have to say. Mm. I, I think the, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's kind of just been a, it's, it's kind of like just the, 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 the poor man's version of advertising to this point. Like that's just, you know, what do you do when you want to advertise something? You just, you just say what it is that you want to talk about, but because there's been such a huge return on investment for from a commercial perspective, there's been a lot of investment in that kind of space. And, and so from, you've got this two completely, completely different kind of versions that are trying to do the same thing. They're both trying, like all of these organizations are trying to drive change, but um, they just, yeah. Anyway, it, it's, it's quite, it's quite a, I'm really genuinely excited about it. And I feel like there's actually, you know, I couldn't have honestly told you that I had any real hope <laughs> um, as much as I don't know where Jane Goodall gets her hope from, but um, well, actually I do. She, she thinks it's all the younger generations, but um, I, you know, I couldn't have honestly been honestly told you that I had, I had hope for a lot of these things Um even six months ago, but as this kind of has developed um, 
in my own head and 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 it seems simple now like you look at it now and you just think oh that's obvious but um yeah it's it's just kind of two different worlds the commercial and the not-for-profit like it's yeah so yeah i think that i've always advocated for this i actually ran a um i, I designed and ran a two-day seminar uh, when I was working in the NGO sector, and it was called Branding, Marketing, and Communications for Nonprofits. And it was quite successful by various measures, uh, not in a commercial sense, but the intention behind it was to have an impact on a lot of grassroots community organizations that were nonprofits or NGOs to say there's a lot you can learn from commercial organizations because mm. whilst you might feel like your intentions are more, for lack of a better word, noble or, um, or, righteous or, or morally um, better. The fact is, is that commercial organizations are doing branding, marketing and communications more effectively. They actually work. They're able to sell things. Mm -hmm. People buy into products, people buy into consumerism, people buy into capitalism. Why can't people buy into um, social justice? Why can't people buy into mm -hmm. environmental um, preservation? Why can't people buy into conservation activism? Why can't people buy into these mm. things? And by buying into it, I mean actually taking some action, following some call to action mm. where the behavior is changing in a sustainable way. But, I, uh, I, you know, it's, can it's I funny. Can I just add really? Yeah, yeah, of course. Go Sorry. ahead. No, I was no, just yeah. going to say, I, I really think the big difference there is the fact that mm -hmm. with all of those, like I, I completely agree with what you're saying about, about, what you were doing. And I think that's, you know, that's lacking for so many organizations, but I think it is that mentality that they have to be, they have to be conveying the facts. They have to be conveying the science. They have to be conveying, you know, how to save a tiger. Don't buy this. Don't buy that. Like that's, um, it's so entrenched in the idea of what they're about that any kind of marketing is still, quite blatantly saying that and i think what i'm i'm really interested to explore is completely throwing that out and going what is the story that we are going to tell it could be anything what is the story we're going to tell that will drive that change it doesn't even like i think once the behavioral change has 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 happened for you know and we're actually making some progress in in a particular um way mm. i th i think there's plenty of time for actually informing the reasons behind and all of that but um anyway yeah so do you have any of those stories have you figured it figured any of the story out that we should be telling i haven't no <laughs> um but i've really only started actually digging into this this is a funny thing like mm. as far as getting um getting the people together to to really dig into this has has only sort of happened in the last week or so so it's um it's quite new for me to be um exploring that and and we've and as i said i've kind of just been developing this whole idea um, and finding where those holes are for quite some time because it it's hard you know it's hard when you come into a space and and you haven't been in that space 
And you want to learn how they do things because you don't want to miss out on the good things that they're doing. But at the same time, you don't want to learn the mistakes. And I think maybe that's, that's why it was possibly easier for me to see because I, I feel like that was why we were successful in the recruitment industry was because I came from somewhere like I was on, I'd only recruited for like eight months or something before I started the business or maybe a year or something. So I, I was really had no idea what I was doing. And mm-hmm. I think not knowing what you're doing kind of often <laughs> makes you um, really sometimes get an edge on things anyway, because in, in the long run, I mean, because you kind of go, Oh, there's a, you know, why aren't we doing it like that? <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's admirable that you've got a combination of curiosity and resourcefulness uh, behind that. I think a lot of people go in with a lot of answers, and those answers are not based on anything. So they don't really know what they're doing, but they'll convince themselves that their creativity will be enough without necessarily going and exploring and figuring out what might work and where can they learn from. And that doesn't work because you just sort of go down a, a deeper and deeper spiral of arrogance really and i think there's layers of that too like i mean i might be at a layer of that right now and break through and realize that this is just a whole other level of naivety <laughs> that i'm sitting on right now and that's happened to me plenty of times too but but again that's kind of where the the no i i know that the problem with no deadlines in this in this situation is that you know we really do have a deadline and it's a big one and it's looming and um and it's kind of shifting as well all the time, I think. Um, so, you know, but but being able to walk away from something and let it sit and and think about it and develop it without sort of sitting there s- s- working on it in a stressed way every day, I, I think that's um, – we'll get to the bottom of it. It might take a while, but <laughs> – and maybe there's 10 more layers of naivety to get through for me but we'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed. A couple of minutes ago, Joseph, you mentioned that you're uh, almost like you caught yourself by surprise that you have this hope. And six months ago, you wouldn't have been that hopeful. I remember a few weeks ago, we were having a chat and we were talking about your, um, I don't know if you'd call it pessimism or cynicism about how likely is it that things can actually change for to change towards a solution, like to actually solve some of these really big problems. And I wanted to ask you this question before we were speaking earlier today. Um, and then I thought, oh, maybe that question's not as relevant anymore, but I actually think it's even more relevant now, um, which is how do you keep your momentum going without having a sense of conviction, not just hope, but conviction that you can solve these problems? Because you have a number of businesses. And by the way, I'd, I'd love to know how many organizations are there in that ecosystem, because you alluded to it, but in your uh, bio itself, you, you only reference Stoning Group and the MERS Institute. So I'm curious if you don't mind sharing what, what are they all? I think there's five off the top of my head okay, um, at right. the moment, maybe four. So we, we, I've sold, you know, I've sold one not that long ago and uh-huh. um, yeah, but there's a, um, do you want me to tell you now? Or? Yeah, yeah, go for it. I'm curious. Yeah? Okay. Cool. I'm sure a lot of people so will be curious, a, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's Sterning Group. Um, as I said, these are more far more. Once I, once I launched 
the Institute, which I originally launched as Mertz Conservation Fund in Australia, I became very clear that I didn't want to set up any more organizations on my own. Um, it was, it was, I wanted to, I wanted to spend the rest of my days basically working in the Institute. So I only got involved then with organizations that I wasn't running myself um, that I would be a part of. So now at the moment I have, uh, yeah, uh, Sterling Group, um, the Institute, which is the, the not-for-profit Um We've got a pharmaceuticals company that we co-founded with uh, um, some really amazing people, um, an ethical one, believe it or not. Um, and uh, we have this, I'm, I'm, I was heavily involved in the launch of, a, of, a, of this um, data and analytics company. Um, and then we've got, what else is there? Oh, there's a new a new spinoff from Sterning, which is a, an IT um, organization, which we've actually been really fortunate with recently. And it's quite a significant thing that's happened um, with the Bangladesh government. I'm not sure whether I told you about that one. No, um, you didn't. I think, that's, I think that's all of them, actually. And then the tech company, which we sold. Um, so... Is that all of them? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, so there's so there's a uh, we we recently were um, the Bangladeshi government got in touch with us and um, got in touch with me and asked if we would be interested in partnering with them um, and exclusively representing all. IT talent from Bangladesh to um, to Australia, wow. and I don't know whether you know much about Bangladesh in that sector, but they're the second largest um, outsourcing country in the world. Um, and uh, Gartner said, I think seventy something percent of CEOs globally had digital transformation as their number one objective for two thousand twenty two, and in the top three challenges they face a talent shortage is one of them so i it, i think it's reasonably safe to say that it's going to be um a pretty busy 2022 for that <laughs> wow, that's um, amazing congratulations yeah it's very exciting thank you i'm i'm actually not even sure whether we're allowed to announce it actually i've just realized because okay. they're not they're flying to sydney to sign the agreement in january um all right maybe let me know later it was, edit this out if we need to yeah okay <laughs> um but it's um so it's fully supported by the by the bangladeshi government and i'm the reason i, I know it sounds like an incredibly kind of um capitalist driving thing for me to get involved in the reason i i'm really keen to do it is i think we can have a significant impact on these people's lives um, we've kind of run basic figures and we, we've worked out that we can, um, we can pay them beyond what the best salaries they would get um, in Bangladesh and still make money as an organization. And the money that we would make would still be good enough to, you know, to do a lot within the Institute. So, um, and the, the people we've been dealing with at the, at the um, Bangladesh High Commission in Canberra, 
have just been so lovely. It's uh, it's just it's I've just really enjoyed the whole the whole process. So I'm very excited about that. Um, mm. And I like that stage. It's the building stage again, and I always really enjoy that. I get you know after actually that was a piece of advice that one of my um, <laughs> that that business advisor the first advisor in business I mentioned told me when I was, I would have been about 15. And he said to me, you are going to destroy every business you build all through your life. If you don't hand it over to someone else to run basically. Um, uh, because I am so interested in changing things all the time. And he's been absolutely right. Like I've, there've been a number of businesses that have kind of ended up like that, that no one would even know because they've just sort of, I've just fiddled with them for so long that things have just fallen to pieces again. Um, but it's all been a learning curve. And so with this, you know, that this is something um, that I'm really excited about, you know, and I've got that now. I've got that kind of down pat with the whole where my level of involvement should be and the parts that I'm best at and handing that off. But that took a, a long time to find those <laughs> answers. Mm. Um, yeah. So that so they're the they're the organisations at the moment, and they okay could change at any time. <laughs> <laughs> that is fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so circling back around to my question, how do you stay? driven or motivated to keep moving forward when you don't necessarily have the optimism of being able to solve these big problems that really matter? I, um, I don't feel like I've got a choice. I think that's one thing. I, I have always believed that if you can see these problems, if you're one of the lucky few who can see them, really see them, um, you have a responsibility to do absolutely everything you can to try and address them. And so I don't really feel like I have a choice in the matter. Um, but in saying that I do really enjoy a challenge and the bigger the challenge, the more I enjoy it. So if I've got like a 0.00001% chance of success, I'll be like, yeah, give it to me kind of thing. <laughs> um, so, and knowing full well that I could dedicate my life to something and not even move the needle at all. Um, mm. But yeah, so, so those are the sort of things I, I think that they're the two reasons why I've, I've kept going with it. Um, and I think the thing that you have to kind of be mindful of in this space as far as motiv motivations go is you go through so much depression with, with so many of the different disciplines. Like when you start digging into the science and all these different areas, um, it's so overwhelming that you get so depressed that I think this, I don't know the psychology behind it, but I think, but, and I'm just speaking for me. Well, actually, no, mm -hmm. I'm speaking for a few other people that I've, I, I'm, I'm talking about a number of people I've met as well that, that this has happened for. But I think there might be some kind of psychological thing that happens where you actually try and attach to the negative outcome. Like you feel like, okay, you almost want it to happen. So you've got some certainty on 
outcome. Like you go, okay, well, it's all just going to fall to pieces because that's what I've accepted now. And then you, you, you almost don't want the hope because that means you kind of go through this whole roller coaster ride again of, yeah, it's possible or, you know, it's all going to be good. Whereas if you just, I remember one of the guys in, in Sterning once said to me that he'd worked out how to be happy. And it was that you just always planned for the absolute, just always expect the worst and you'll never be disappointed. <laughs> and I remember I, I just laughed at the time and I thought, oh my God, what a, like, what a place to be. Mm. And, um, and I think in honesty, that's kind of where I ended up with all of this was just, but, but I think there's a risk with getting attached to it and actually trying to ignore the positive potential because you you want some sort of certainty. And so if there's anyone listening who's maybe relating to that, um, I just want to say that dig into it because I think there, you know, um, we don't want to miss any opportunities because we're hung up on an outcome because of some I don't know, it might be some cognitive bias or something that's driving it. Um, we're making enough mistakes because of cognitive biases, by the way. But I think, um, yeah, anyway, that's, that's it. That's a, that's a wonderful message. I can tell you from personal experience, even with clients that I've worked with in a, um, in a confidential coaching context over the past few years, um, I've come to care about environmental matters a lot more simply because I've realized how much of an impact it has on mental health. People who do have um, emerging awareness of the impact of the trajectory that we're on and are vulnerable to chronic anxiety or depression, it's very triggering to um, to, to have hope that teeters. I mean, you look at what's happening in Australian politics now, for example, and largely that echoes around the world. Um, it's really difficult to feel hopeful because hope, at least I believe in, this comes from um, my studying of various spiritual uh, philosophies based on, well, various Eastern spiritual philosophies but, but also Stoicism has a little bit of this as well, which is that hope is actually in itself quite useless because hope is very dependent on external uh, external factors to maintain. You can't do anything about hope. You can have faith, but hope implies that something may turn out right and I'm going to accept that there's a whole underlying condition of uncertainty that is there. So if I have a personal psychological propensity to get anxious or to get depressed, then I'm going to, by default, value stability more. It's usually anxiety in particular. It stems from some sort of complex trauma that means that your idea of safety is compromised because you didn't have the stability that you needed to feel that your environment was safe enough. So because of that lack of safety um, and associated lack of stability, you want things to be more concrete and certain. And then that comes back to what you're saying, which is that if the certainty is in saying, you know, F the hope and just let's assume that everything is going to continue down the path it is and 
go to shit, then at least that's more convincing and I'm more sold on that. So I'm not going to do anything because then it'll just trigger my anxiety because hope triggers my anxiety. It's a, it's a really messed up, vicious cycle to get mm. caught in. I feel, I feel for people in that trap, which is why I think your story is so inspiring because despite having a lot of reasons to give up or to quit along the way because of how much awareness you have, you've held on to momentum. And you've held on to progress instead of striving for a particular outcome. Even though, ironically, at the beginning, earlier in this conversation, you were talking about not setting long-term goals, right? Just doing three months at a time. Um, and, and that's why I asked you that question about still persisting and maintaining momentum, not necessarily hope or faith, but just keep moving, keep climbing up that hill mm. and eventually uh, expecting the hope to show up, which, as you said, just in the last week, it has for you in a, in a really profound way. That in itself is so inspiring. Thank you. I, I think, I think um, that keeping on moving thing, and I mean, just, just know your general direction, I think, and, 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 and discard kind of the expectations you have on yourself know the general direction and yeah, keep moving in that direction. And one thing I think as well is reach out. I've always asked for help always. And people, you know, people think they do it on their own. They think that, you know, there's this thing of you've got to, you've got to do it all on your own and you don't, no one, no one does it on their own. And you can talk to whoever you want, whoever you think is successful. And I guarantee you that it's, it hasn't been, you know, I mean, there might be the odd exception. I don't know, but I've, I'm, I'm yet to meet anyone who's done anything absolutely exceptional mm -hmm. um, in an area and they've done it on their own. So I've always asked for help, even if it's meant that I've got no. And I, I genuinely think nine times out of 10, it's been a yes. It might be a reluctant yes, or it might be I'm, you know, feeling stressed about the yes, because I need to feel, I need to make sure I prove that I'm worthy of whatever it is that they're giving me. Um, but uh, if you're genuine about it as well, I think anyway, why I'm saying that is if you ask for help and you find the most amazing people in all the different areas that you are interested in, or you want to make progress in, and they might seem scary or they might seem, you know, um, out of reach or something like that. But if you just pick up the phone to them or track down their mobile number, I, you know, and just have that, you might have the first five of them will just be the most awkward things that happen ever and maybe practice with the ones you don't care about so much. Um, <laughs> but I... What what I'm getting at is that if you can if you can speak to people who are just in a whole other whole other dimension as far as where you want to go, the leaps and bounds you can make, even if it's just you on your own trying to like nut it out in your own head, um, where the institute's got to from where it was as a conservation fund in the time that it's been doing this. I could not have done that without 
the advice of all the advisors who came on board. People, you know, we've got two of the top climate scientists in the world on the advisory board and and I get to talk to them and pick their brains on things and um, uh, on, on certain issues and um, and you just you just don't spend the time browsing through the copious amounts of data on everything and sort of muddling your way through you're, you're straight there and, and it's pretty easy from that point to check or question the logic or whatever and you know they'll um so what i what the point of what i'm saying right now is one for any of the advisors that are listening thank you because i just want to say thank you because i haven't actually properly said thank you to any of them um and for putting up with probably a lot of nonsensical questions that I had really early on. Um, and, and two, for people who really want to have an impact and they're having trouble working out where to start in whatever area, um, that's, uh, yeah, that, that would be what I, I, I think the, the way that you can gain the most traction the fastest is is to do that. And that actually, now that I'm saying it seems really friggin' obvious, but um, yeah. <laughs> oh, look, I don't think it's obvious at all. In fact, I've been, I've been itching to ask you this um, for, for a while now in this conversation. And maybe it's a, uh, maybe it can be the second last sort of topic that we can uh, wrap up with, but it's, it's a big question because it, it might involve a bit of unpacking. Um, You've mentioned throughout this conversation, throughout speaking about your journey, that throughout your journey, you've had advisors and you've had advisory board. It's something I'm a big fan of. I'm a big advocate of. I've been an advisor to a lot of people, both in terms of advisory boards, but also professional, um, just in a professional capacity has been my job to be an advisor in some cases. And I've had personal advisors, professional advisors in different domains and helped set up advisory boards. And it's amazing how many people are so shy to do that for themselves, whether they're in business or, and I recommend this for even aspiring, emerging and current leaders in corporate organizations, whether you're in a job or in a, in any kind of leadership role or assuming a leadership role, create your own advisory board or advisory group, have that group to go to. So I want to ask you a bit of a, a tactical question, Joseph. How do you do that? How did you do it? And what's the, what's the playbook, so to speak, for building, designing, creating an advisory board? I think um, it's a really good question. And I think it ties into one thing that's really was very fundamental to me um, with the whole thing. I'm, I'm one of those people who sort of things develop as I talk to people. I can have an idea in my head and until I actually have a proper conversation with someone, it just doesn't. Like I can, you know, I, um, and one of the things I kind of knew the direction I wanted to go with this, but one thing that didn't really drop until quite late in the game was um, the importance of quality data. Like if I, I suddenly sort of realized it all depends on how how accurate the data is that I'm getting because I make decisions on that all the time. This was something that came to me when I was when I was running one of I think it was when I'd first launched Sterning, and I thought, you know, 
if I don't, if you hear, my kids are outside biking around, so hopefully we don't have any accidents. Um, but um, I think when I realized the importance of that, um, which again seems really obvious now, but if you're getting bad data, you're making bad decisions. It's as, it's as simple as that, in my opinion. Well, it's just luck whether you make a good one. Um, so I, you know, you need to be getting really quality data to make your decisions on. Um, and in an organization, the way that I worked out to do that was to create safety. It was always about you had to have an environment that was incredibly safe for people. So that means if you've got some guy that's, you know, um, making jokes and they're just, it's all lighthearted, but it's making some of the team feel uncomfortable or unsafe. They might not even say anything, but if you think that that's happening, you're, you, you know, that's a potential threat to the data you're getting because if they don't feel safe they're not going to be honest with you and if they're not honest with you then you've got bad data so on on how to run your organization how to make make decisions um because if you don't have as well if you don't have a team that's happy and cohesive and all of that then you've got real issues so i just wanted to say that on on the importance of quality information coming to you and in an organization that again that's probably quite obvious to a lot of people but it's something that's so easily um forgotten because people think oh well it's just a it's just a joke or he's just he's just like that or she's just like that um but that's that's not just that's not just a threat to you know, the relationship between those two people in your organization, it's, it could be huge and it could cause all sorts of issues with any information you're getting. Um, and I always say a good example of that is, you know, if you, if you think about an employee who feels safe versus an employee who doesn't feel safe and you ask them what they want out of the organization, um, they'll give you very different answers. You know, one might tell you about the goals they have as a family and, um, or they might tell you that they don't want to be there that long. They want to be, you know, they don't see themselves there for a long period of time because they feel totally safe to tell you that. And that is fine. Um, but otherwise, <laughs> the other one might tell you, um, you know, that they, they're going to be there and they want to build themselves up and they want to, you know, um, all this stuff that they think you want to hear. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's the... the and, a really good example and in, in my opinion of, of the importance of good data and and you will get that from an advisory board if you get the right one um the other thing i wanted to say was if you do want to build an advisory board and in my experience um the way to do it is to get as far as you can you, you might need to get sort of different stages <laughs> if it's a space that you've never um, that you've never uh, been in before um, because you'll need to, you, you can't just, you can't always, depending on who the person is, you can't always go straight to the top, even though that's kind of what I just said, um, because you need to make some sense. Like there needs to be some reason why these people are actually going to give you their time because they are probably 
they probably have they're probably on 10 other advisory boards they you know um and and they're probably lecturing all the time and being interviewed and going off and doing all sorts of things so um yeah so so i think you have to kind of get don't don't just assume that in some cases you might be able to gauge the person and 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 you realize that the sort of person who actually just really wants to nurture anyone that they see any kind of interest in in that space but um but for the most part i think these people are incredibly busy and if you think about what you do when you're really busy with someone who contacts you and you think oh my gosh i just don't have time to do that um you might get unnecessary knockbacks um so that anyway that that's i i used that kind of thinking before i put um put my advisory board together and uh i don't think we've had one person turn down turn down a position on the advisory board so we've been pretty lucky with it and i think that's partly why hmm so if you don't mind, could we take a step back to thinking about someone listening to this who says, okay, I, I'm sold on the idea that there's a lot of value to my leadership to have an advisory board. Um, I want to think about who should I reach out to? How do I think about the makeup of the different kinds of advisors that I should think about having on that board? I'm probably the wrong person to ask that, to be honest, ask, ask that question to, because I'm, um, well, how did you, how did you pick and choose? The, okay. Well, I, I want to know everything. So I am truly just like, if I see anything and it even tickles my interest in any way, I'll just be straight for it. Like, um, mm. so, um, I, I only really want to work in the spaces that I'm interested in. And, uh, as I learn more about different spaces, I, you know, I get more and more interested in things. And my biggest problem is, is triaging the problems because there are so many things to be focusing on. And um, so for me, it's everything. Like, honestly, if I see anyone and it's an, it's a space that interests me, I will, I will bring them in. And part of that is because I'm not focused on results instantly it's all information that's all part of this whole journey that i'm on and how thing how things kind of formulate in my head and then what turn, what you know how that eventuates into actual action be it an organization or some alliance or some whatever it is um so again i think it kind of comes back to taking that pressure of time out of things so that you're sort of following what you're interested in. And um, if you've got a particular problem in a particular area, again, I'd look at, you know, problems. It's, it's driven by the problems you're wanting to solve as well, um, which again, for me, it very much was. They're very clear issues all over the place. And who are the people who know the most about these and can give me the most facts, uh, uh, the the best, you know, quality data about it. Um, it reminds me of something that I don't, I don't remember who said it, but it may have been Elon Musk. Um, and it was something along the lines of always start from a place of absolute truth. Um, 
And again, that kind of might seem obvious, but it's, it's very easy for us to want to start from, uh, from something that's of interest, like just go, oh yeah, this is how I think it is. And it's interesting to me. So I'm going to, I'm going to build from there, but you always have to check that too. It might be in an area that you're interested in, um, but there's often like, you know, fundamental kind of assumptions based on all sorts of things. So um, I would look at your the, the types of advisors that you want from who can give you those absolute truths as well to kind of build from. Um, yeah, it's just all about quality data. It really all just comes back to that. Like who can give you the cleanest information um, and who's going to, yeah. I mean, I, and again, I guess that's super obvious, isn't it? <laughs> no, I don't. It's, you know, it's what I classify as elusive obvious. It's obvious when you say it, but it eludes people because perhaps they don't think about it until they come across conversations like this. So I think it's worth stating the obvious sometimes, and some people are afraid of doing that. What, what I take from what you're sharing is that um, it's really valuable. I'm just thinking about this now based on what you've said, that it's really valuable to think about advisors who have a really good understanding and can give you, as you've said, data, good quality data about the problem, not just advisors who are solving that problem somewhere. And I'm thinking back to all of the people who I know who have created advisory boards and then not really, they haven't been the best in using them. And it's been because their motivations have been about either let's create a group of people that sound really impressive that we can put on the website to say, this is our advisory board. And they don't necessarily have access to them, but they just have their permission to put their profiles in a group. And it sounds impressive and it lends weight to uh, the brand credibility, which which is okay. I mean, I guess that's a, a thing as well. And if they're saying that we're advisors and, you know, we we can have a conversation with you once a year, I guess it's not dishonest, but mm -hmm. it's not really getting the most of having advisors that you can actually leverage. And then the other thing is, is people just don't know what to ask of their advisors. And I've been in situations as well where I've said, yep, I'm formally on board to be a, um, a vo voluntary advisor, or even in some cases, a professional advisor where I'm getting paid a retainer. And nobody asks me anything. <laughs> they mm. don't, uh, they, they, they just continue on in their assumptions. So mm. it occurs to me based on what you're saying that, yeah, it's really valuable to have advisors that can be useful and provide good quality data on different levels of that journey, both in terms of understanding the problem really well and then ideating uh, opportunities for solving the problem. And then perhaps advisors who can help along the way to implementing the solution and who might bring in different perspectives about other kinds of solutions out there. And you can broaden your perspectives and horizons, and how you're thinking uh, about it as well, which it sounds like what I'll, you've done over time. Yeah. And, and I'll mm. quite often ask advisors outside of a particular area, what, um, about things that are way outside of the area, just because I, I find it quite interesting to hear what they'll say. And, um, you know, it's all, in honesty, it's, it's, there's, I, I'm still very much kind of just 
building it as I go with things. Like I just, I don't know whether that ever stops in life, but it hasn't stopped for me. That's for sure. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've definitely gone through periods of, you know, feeling like I I'm really confident. I know exactly what I'm doing and then losing that completely. And then suddenly starting to feel confident again, and then losing that completely. And I think that's, that seems to be a pretty normal thing. And I've, I've actually discovered that confidence is more often a symptom of naivety than it is of actually knowing really what you're doing in a lot of things. Like, well, I mean, I do lots of different things. So it, for me, it is for some people who just specialize in one area, it it probably wouldn't be, but I move from, you know, specialism to specialism all the time. And I'm, I'm very good at knowing a little bit about a lot of things. Um, and some things I know pretty well, but um, yeah. Um, but I was going to say um, in response to what you, what you said before, um, so, some, some, you know, some organizations will just have a list of people on the site and, and I was mindful to make sure that we went beyond that, that it was actually, you know, it wasn't just about credibility. There was certainly an element of like, we wouldn't have asked to put their profiles up if that wasn't um, part of it. And and they're not all up there either. We've still got some others to add, but I, um, but I think it's, it's also okay if you're only contacting some of them really because it depends what you're doing. Like, you know, I, I, there's some, when we're doing a particular program, there'll be, you know, like our poor sociology advisor, she's like constantly inundated by me. I feel like because of the stuff that we're working through at the moment. And then when we do another program, it'll be another one that's getting hounded. I remember as the ecotoxicologist in the beginning, I was, I felt like I was calling him too much. And you, you always sort of feel bad about, well, I, I did because I never, we, we never paid anyone on the advisory board. And I'm just one of those people who feels bad about things all the time. But, um, but I think, um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to add that. I, I, I don't think it's like, don't feel like you should be always contacting them. I, I'm on the advisory board of a, of an organization called Trio. And um, in the beginning, they were contacting me quite a lot about things. And, um, but as they nutted it out more and more, I was very clear with them in the beginning that, you know, once things got very commercial and, and going down that, that route of um, raising capital and all of that, I was not the right person. I said, I will be giving you the opposite advice to all the other advisors, I guarantee you. And, and basically that I think is what happened and they haven't, they haven't lost their integrity as an organization at all. They've, you know, she's, um, they've done really, really well, but I'm, I'm just not the right person to be advising them on that because I, I try and push them in a very different direction to that. Um, but they have, you know, they, they, they're in a totally different space and they want to um, change things and, in, and, and that's the way that they can change them. And, and that's really good. So anyway, what I'm kind of getting at with that is that I'm, um, yeah, that th- that there might be a point where one, one advisor is, is valuable for a stage of the organization and then another one comes in. So I, yeah, I know that advisory boards are 
generally like seven people or something um, or 10 people, but I would have a hundred people if I could. Like I really, I am not fussed on how many there are. The more, the better in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think sometimes that's a little bit of a, uh, of a confusion as well that people have about saying, well, is there a difference between an advisory board and having a list of advisors? So if I'm building an advisory board, do I need to get them together on some regular cadence? Or can I just simply have a board that's virtual distributed, not necessarily coming together? It's just actually a database of advisors that I can tap into. And my advice, it sounds like is pretty much what um, your approach is as well, that just because you're calling it a board doesn't mean that you have to get them in a boardroom and you know, have a collective conversation with them. You could do that as well if it's if it's purposeful um, and there's a point to it. But the point is to have a commitment to always be thinking beyond your own individual brain so that you can extend and leverage the, as, as you said, to use that term again, uh, good quality data feeding into coming in to help you understand the problem better, help you ideate better and help you solve better. Mm, absolutely. And another really interesting aspect of them, which I might just add, because it, it, mm -hmm. it really drives home the human element of all of this. You know, if you, these amazing people that are just so knowledgeable in, in their area, um, if you actually cross over their areas and you know, you start asking them advice on someone else's specialism. Um, quite often you'll see that there's a, and if any of them are listening, I really don't mean this in an objective way. So sorry how objective this sounds, but um, uh, quite often you'll see that there's just a narrative in the areas that they, that are, that aren't there discipline so they know this this area so well and then as soon as it's some other space they'll tell you you know what what makes sense to them based on the experiences that they've had and you know the conversation the friends they've got and the conversation because that they're, they're not specialists in it so um the thing that kind of that made me realize was, you know, just how human we all are, no matter how much we know in a, we know solidly in a particular area in other areas, we're just, we're just doing the same. And I think, um, you know, to me, that's, that's given me that the definition of an uninformed person is, is sort of someone who just has a narrative on, ev on everything that they've created themselves that they, they might think it's a hundred percent true. Um, but and it's kind of left me with no narrative i think i was i can't remember whether it was whether i was telling you this dev but i was telling someone the other day that because i kind of have um i get all these different sources of of data on all these different things the narrative i had on all of these different issues that we're facing just slowly shrank and disappeared <laughs> and i was i i feel like there's not really much room for a, a narrative that i um and i think that's where kind of where the depression came from because you sort of if you don't know like you you can just sort of tell yourself things in certain areas and think oh yeah that makes sense that's probably what's happening but once you start getting it getting good data from all different areas um yeah, what's left 
for you to kind of make up is less and less and less. And, and that can be a pretty, um, pretty uncomfortable thing to deal with sometimes, <laughs> but yeah. That's profound. I'm just, it's really made me take pause and think about how you collect different pieces of narratives from others and it can prompt you to let go of your personal stories in a if sense you're, if you're open to it sometimes it just you just to really want to you know sometimes you just really want to push in the other direction as hard as you can and be like mm. no i don't know whether it ties in with ignorance is bliss i was going to say ignorance is bliss i think there's some sort of crossover there or something but um but it's just been yeah it's just been an observation that i had and and it's been like i you know you you asked before about perseverance i have been on the brink of throwing everything away so many times the number of times i've just said to my wife right lads let's just like pack everything up and go to the hills and let's just like give the kids the best upbringing possible and fuck what happens next sorry but yeah um and she's always the one like my wife very rarely compliments me on anything she always knows right when i'm on the brink of just burning it all <laughs> and then she'll say one piece of you know one thing one line of um encouragement and that's usually all it takes for me to kind of keep on going for another six months <laughs> wow sounds like um, the most important member of your advisory board right there she's certain she certainly is and she knows just when to do it too she doesn't she never does it too early. I'm always thinking, come on, Nell's like, give me something. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so so I guess why I'm saying that is um, if you if you if you're constantly wanting to throw it away, like in my opinion, that's fine too. It's just again part of the journey. And if you're doing anything really, really meaningful. Um, and maybe you're not doing many, I mean, like, I, I think it's a, it's a, it can happen when you're not doing anything meaningful, but if you're doing something meaningful, it will always happen. Um, so it doesn't mean you're doing something meaningful. Uh, that's probably quite a confusing <laughs> statement, but, um, but if, if you are, you will experience the whole throw it away thing. Um, because that it's just these, these problems that we face are, it's complex and it takes ages and there's no room for, um, there's no, no room whatsoever for comparing yourself. That's actually something that's just dawned on me now talking to you is I let go of comparing myself to people about four or five years ago, completely. Like I don't even occasionally think oh this is where this person's at and we started you know that used to be a regular thing for me i would just go you know all the time but i don't think i could even remotely have got to where we are if i was still um comparing myself to to anyone it just wouldn't um and actually so that's a really cool realization to have because i remember thinking to myself i need to get rid of there was kind of this epiphany that I had on how they were just so destructive. Comparisons were just so destructive. 
because who is in a who when you look at a comparison for like what a some sort of statistical comparison would be or something who is who could you ever compare yourself to with the number of variables that was kind of the realization for me with the number of variables in the equation and for everyone there is no one on earth you really should or you really could actually make a comparison again so it's a meaningless thing to do that just destroys your energy and muddies the water i i did want to make sure that we had a chance to talk about the mers institute itself and um so you know i came across the mers institute when you organized the program around uh, success and we've had a couple of conversations in that program but also about that program as well and i was hoping you could just talk to the audience a little bit about what the MERS Institute is in your bio, as, as I read out earlier. Um, I said that it's a data-driven conservation organization with a broad mission that ensures continuous, continual relevance in a world where the only constant is change. But what is it? It's, um, it's, it's quite mysterious, as I mentioned to you before as well, even from the website. I, yeah, I, you know, when I say I took three years to try and work out where, where to start, that was a, a lot of that was kind of linked to um, to that. I knew I wanted to do something. I knew I needed to do something that was um, that was tackling the issues that were so obvious to me. But the hard part was knowing where they started and where they stopped. Um, and we've got this very kind of. I always I, I often tell people this, but there's a uh, an indigenous. Um, I, I, I did some work with Indigenous um, communities in, in Australia and um, I have a huge, like I cannot say how huge the amount of respect I have for Indigenous culture is. Um, and we've got some really, I've got some absolutely fascinating things that we've kind of been playing with in that space. But, yeah, just not time to talk about it. Um but they, one, one of the, um, I remember that a lecturer in Indigenous studies I was talking to uh, introduced me to a, an, an elder, a Mudbara elder in Australia. And this guy was a, incredible and he was just, it was just such a different experience to even get a, a glimpse of that culture. Um, and he said, he said, you white fellas really like your binary thinking. <laughs> and um, I was kind of, I don't know, might have been offended at the time, but I, it really st stuck with me um, because it's just so true. We want, we want things to be simple. Um, we want to we want to kind of be able to compartmentalize everything and put it into, you know, put things into categories, look at the scientific world, look at how that, you know, taxonomy and all of that, it's all about categorizing. It's all about putting things in a, in a place. And, and, and for the brief moment in time that we're here as a species, um, or actually take it back to the brief moment in time we're here as individuals, you can do that. Because um, you can do that because you've got uh, the, 
because it's such a, a you know on an on an evolutionary time scale they'll stay within those categories and even even sometimes we see things moving like i think it was some i i mean i don't know the particular reason for this change but i remember the the bobcat was moved from Felis Rufus from memory to Lynx Rufus or something as its scientific name. So, you know, they're always changing things based on the categorization. And and indigenous communities, and it's a generalization to say this, but the cult, sorry, the culture doesn't see it like that at all um, from my experience of them. Um, and we really need to move away from that, I think, um, and, and what I'm getting at with this whole big, long kind of way of getting there um, is that these problems don't start and stop really um, in very clearly defined ways. You know, we look at, we, I, I genuinely think that so many of the issues that we're seeing now from a climate perspective have a tail that extends beyond what we could even imagine um, because of the interconnectedness of everything in the natural world and the way that it truly operates. And that might sound kind of weird and spiritual, but it's really not. Dig into the science and you just see that it's telling you more and more what Indigenous cultures were telling us from the beginning. And we just thought, oh, yeah, what do you know? Um, And so... Finding where that started, where those problems started and where those problems stopped was huge. Like if you if you see and getting to the core of that is really, really complex. And am I at the core of it? On some of them, I think we're getting close. On others, I've got no idea. I've got absolutely no idea. And I probably can't tell you for four more years. But um, I think the... I wanted the Institute to encompass all of that. I didn't want it to be this thing that was going to be there for a moment in time. And and then, you know, its purpose was irrelevant because we solved that problem. I wanted it to be something that, um, that would actually be a force for good for a long, long time, potentially, you know, my kids might be like, well, stuff that I'm not doing that. Um, (laughs) But um, and, and so I set it up with that. And, and so that's why we've got this, this focus on, um, on being a constant throughout all that change and addressing new problems as they come up. Um, and, and I want it to be something really core to, um, to how we're kind of known and how we're remembered. And um, yeah. So that's that was kind of where it started, anyway. Okay, so that that gives a sense of um, the scale and scope of the problems that it's solving. It sounds to me like it's not a vehicle for a particular solution, but a a, um, uh, a big ship to try and deal with all of these problems in different ways. Are there any particular solutions that you're deploying at the moment? I don't know if you want to talk about discover success or, or anything else in that uh, vein. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, the big, the big kind of, I mean, there's so many big issues we're trying to tackle. Um, but some that I think people should know about are, you know, when, when they look at climate, people are very focused on, on the climate situation and climate change and, you know, but there are drivers for climate change and it's, it's, 
it's not as um, it's not as simple as um, carbon emissions. You know, like it's all it's there's nowhere really left to hide with these things. We need to we really need to get to the core of the issues, and the and the core of the issues are the, is the amount of energy that we're using as humans it's it's absolutely mind-blowing i i built a calculator recently that you can put in um how many liters your car takes in fuel and the type of fuel and then you can put the wage that you'd like to pay people and it will tell you how much you would have to pay people to exert that amount of energy for a single tank of gas and it's for your average car it's somewhere in the range of, I think, a couple of hundred thousand dollars you would have to pay in hours for people to actually, you know, you actually exert that energy for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's just what we're flying through. And this is not, you know, um, this isn't, it's just not, there's no way with the technology that we've got at the moment that we can continue that. There's just not. So anything anyone tells you at this point in time about a solution, if it does not involve reducing our consumption right back down to like, you know, your grandparents' level of consumption, your great-grandparents' level of consumption, then in my opinion, it's not a solution because we are going to run into planetary boundaries whichever way we go. Um, if you look at some one of the uh, trustees for the Institute is a, is a professor called Simon Michaud um, and he works for the um, Finnish government. If you look at some of his work on um, phasing out fossil fuels and limits to growth and things like that, you know, you see that the current fleet of electric vehicles globally is about 0.7% of the total. Um, and the amount of um, minerals and, and metals and all the things that we need to, uh, to scale that up, uh, there's, there's really not enough. I think the, the final numbers were something like if we use all the lithium on earth, and I know people will say, oh, there's other types of batteries and all of that, but you, you will run into these problems. If we use all of... We'd, we'd basically use everything and we make something like 16 years worth of <laughs> worth of batteries for, and, and people say, Oh, well you can recycle and you can, you know, um, but they're just not viable solutions. And you've got to remember that and, and under the current model, we want growth all the time anyway. So, um, you know, energy, anyway, what I'm getting at is energy is a big one that we're trying to look at. And that is linked very much to consumption and, the idea of success that people are striving for, which is why we also launched a program called Discover Success, um, which was is designed to um, start people on that journey of kind of exploring what success really means in their in their life, as opposed to what you were just talking about earlier, um, a- as being accepting kind of someone else's definition of it and just adopting that. So that, I think they get, that really gets to the heart of the climate side of things. And then there's, um, and then there's all the environmental contaminant side, you know, to do with, um, well, exactly that environmental contaminants, the things that we're putting out all the time um, in New Zealand 
that would be the dairy industry um, and the issues that that um, the issues there. Um, one of the other trustees is a guy called um, Dr. Mike Joy, and I've known Mike for quite some time now, and he's very vocal about that. He's a freshwater ecologist in New Zealand and um, very well known here. Um, really not afraid to call a spade a spade, which is just brilliant. It's one of the things I really love about him. <laughs> and, uh, and and if you look at the the numbers on nitrate nitrogen levels and things like that here, and and I do, you know, Google Mike and look up some of those figures and. It's these are huge issues staring us in the face, and and I can guarantee you that the impacts of these, with what I explained before about <clears throat> how interconnected everything is, we don't even have any idea of what the long term, um, what the real long term effects of these will be, um, and I, I know this probably sounds quite extreme, but. I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if we started seeing really, really strange new natural phenomena that we've just never even heard of or known about because they've just the 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 the, um, the ingredients for that to occur has just not happened in our recorded history. So I'm half mm. expecting things like that to start soon because I think we're and I know that that you know that's just my theory. I'm not saying that based on anything that I've been told i i think it's just a almost obvious expectation to have based on how little we know about the world that exists around us and how significant the changes that we're making in this period of time um mm. so yeah environmental contaminants then this population oh, so, sorry pause mike's full name again um, mike those joy. Want to google them mike joy mike joy okay um if you just search mike joy ecologist he'll come up or even probably just mike joy anywhere in the world he's pretty well known and he's he's um uh, he's a really they're all really wonderful people you know they really are they genuinely want to want to want to make an impact um so uh, yeah then there's population issues um uh, and and kind of bizarrely fertility issues um <laughs> we've got, excuse me, um, we've got a, a like fertility rates of the last 50 years have been dropping at over 1% per annum. Um, yeah. And uh, there's a fact that I always tell people about, you know, how um, your average 20-something-year-old American girl is now less fertile than her grandmother was at the age of 34, I think, or 35. Um, right, interesting. So... So they're significant decreases, but they are still, and that's worrying on its own. Like that's really worrying on its own. But then to be to be actually facing a population crisis at the same time is mm. even more kind of terrifying because it's sort of like, where do we go with this? But the population side wins out, in my opinion, um, and in the opinion of um, of the. Uh, the advisors that I've, you know, we've spoken to about it. And, you know, I think we need to really tackle energy use consumption and, and, um, and population and energy use comes into, I mean, that's just consumption really. So they're kind of the obvious ones. And then there's, 
there are a number of others that are um, like insect biomass decline and things like that. I mean, that's just terrifying. It's declining at two and a half percent per annum globally. Um, we've got one of the advisors we've got is, is Chris Vikus, who's a, um, a really amazing entomologist. And um, yeah, there, there's, there is some, we, we've got a program that we're working on on that too. So all of these things we've been developing programs with. And then the last one that I'll quickly mention is um, to do with resilience. And that's, that's one that I'm personally very um, passionate about. And it's something that's concerned me for a long, long time. Um, and it's basically boils down to the fact that, I mean, I know I was raised by two very religious people. So um, even though one was a Catholic and one was a Protestant, but uh, <laughs> I, um, they both agreed about the only thing they agreed on really was um, that, you know, we're not animals. We are something special and something different. And I, and that never just never sat with me. I mean, Google, Google the, the, the digestive system of a chimpanzee and oh, anything. I mean, you just think about the complete absurdity of some of these things when you actually take, take the normality of how, you know, how we perceive it as normal and you think about like a nipple or something, you just think how bizarre is that? And then, you know, here are all these warm blooded things that all have nipples. And um, to me, that kind of, I don't know, it's just, to me, it's just far more likely that it's just a narrative we've been telling ourselves. So in that sense, I have a real concern about our, our future as a species. We, we are primates that essentially don't know how to live in our natural habitat at all anymore and that's happened very very quickly and not only that the knowledge that we used to hold and pass between you know from generation to generation or at least have in books at home or nearby um, is no longer stored anywhere accessible without electricity um, there are there, if you if you look around you and and you know your local supermarket holds usually around the world holds about a day and a half worth of food. If you have just do a thought experiment on you know what would happen if if we um, if something was disrupted globally, which can happen. Look up coronal mass ejections or things like that. They might seem unlikely to happen, but um, the scale of what it, what, the significance of what they mean is <clears throat> really quite extreme. Um, so th there's that resilience piece, and that's a really, really big one. Um, we've been we've been working on that, and um, we haven't got anything really to show for it yet, aside from a a sort of a framework that keeps expanding. But I I think all humans need to be thinking about their relationship to the natural world, their knowledge of it. Where do they get basic things? Where can they get basic things if infrastructure fails? Where can they get water? Where can they get, how can they know what plants are edible? And these are things that we should know and have reinforced over and over again as primates. As long as we are primates on a natural planet, um, we need to, that needs to be, it, <laughs> Second nature, it should be nature, but second, I'll take second nature. And right now for most people, it is, it's not even achievable. 
Um, so, or it's not even even remotely on their radar. So that's kind of that's that's it really. Well, thanks for the reminder that I am a primate. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, that's as you promised on, on your LinkedIn profile. profile. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's um, that's super inspiring. I've taken a bunch of notes based on what you said that I am itching to Google, and I'm sure a lot of others are as well. Um, on that note, and to wrap up, Joseph, if people want to find out more about what you're up to and the work generally, and potentially even get involved um, with the mission of the MERS Institute and everything else that you're doing, where can they do, go? How can they do that? Um, so they can go to Mertz Institute, M-E-R-Z. It doesn't have a T in it. It's, it's um, German. So M-E-R-Z institute.org. And that's the site. Um, otherwise, I'm happy if you've got, I mean, look, I will, I'm open to all sorts of things. My email address is joseph at Mertz institute.org. And if you've, if you've got something that you think is, you know, brilliant and going to help in any of these things or anything that's hugely burning for you, absolutely get in touch because, um, yeah, we need all hands on deck, I think, at the moment. <laughs> all right. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you hear from some interesting people, um, but I'm looking forward to keeping an eye on the journey and contributing however I can as well uh, in the coming days, weeks, months and years. Joseph, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Um, is there anything you'd like to say to the audience before we wrap up? One last very quick thing, which is um, I know that in these sorts of things, I mean, I'm not the best talker, but in these sorts of scenarios, it often seems externally like it all has sort of flowed and been simple and, and naturally progressed and all sorts of things like that. And it, I just want to iterate or reiterate, sorry, that um, no matter how much it seems like that with whatever I say or whatever you hear from me now or previously or in the future, it is not like that in my life at all. It, is, it, has, been, it has been a real journey. And I think the only reason um, I've been fortunate with it is because I've stayed so open to potential solutions and exploring things and doing hard work internally. So if you're having a really tough time getting anywhere with any of it, anything that you're doing, that is so normal in my opinion. And no matter how good some of it might sound, it's um, that struggle is, I think, ever present. So that's all I want to say. Thanks for making it to the end of this episode. You'll be able to find the show notes and more at my website over at leadbydesign.show. I really hope you enjoyed this. And if you did, then I have a request for you. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you're watching or listening to it. And share this episode with someone directly who you believe would benefit from this conversation. Thanks for listening.